Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by Spalding University's Sina Jeter Naslin, Karen Mann Graduate School of Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to Think Humanities. I have a lot of questions for Patricia Hudson. Apparently doing well with her writing in publishing nonfiction, editing anthologies, and writing numerous magazine articles, why would she turn to fiction? What was it about this particular historical Kentucky family that captured her attention? Why these women in the early and mid-1700s? And how long did it really take her to write her first novel? Patricia Hudson has been writing professionally for over 30 years. She has contributed to leading magazines like Southern Living and Americana Magazine, author of Ends of the Southern Mountains, editor of Listen Here, Women Writing in Appalachia, and other work. She received her MFA at the Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing at Spalding University, our wonderful podcast underwriter, where she um, experienced, uh, and I would say even experienced and talented writers like Patricia go to learn new skills and to become uh, better writers. She was also uh, chosen along with her novel, Traces, which we're going to discuss today, uh, a part of our book bundle at Kentucky Humanities. Uh, which we uh, select uh, four books and send those out uh, throughout uh, the world and throughout the Commonwealth. And many of you read Traces uh, that way. And she will also be at the Kentucky Book Festival when we wind things up uh, uh, and get them, uh, set them ready to go in October on the 21st. We're so happy to have Patricia Hudson before our Kentucky uh, Humanities, Think Humanities podcast. Patricia, welcome. Thank you, Bill. It's nice to be here. Well, let's just jump right in and uh, we'll talk a little bit about your your writing career and and uh, what made you such a prolific writer for so long uh, as you were thinking about and working on uh, other work, including Traces, which we'll talk about. But let's begin there. Tell us about Traces and why the Boone women uh, of all of the historical families and and famous women in Kentucky history. Why the Boone women? Well, uh, it's funny. I've always been drawn to sort of the stories that are underneath the stories that are are most told. And and for so many uh, women, our stories are sort of hidden within the historical record or within the stories that we've that we've heard. And in 1996, I just happened to pick up a biography of Daniel Boone. And uh, although, you know, his story was fascinating, what I found even more interesting were the women that were kind of between the lines. And so I decided I was going to, to start doing some research on them. And I went down a rabbit hole that uh, lasted for uh, over 25 years of, of uh, trying to figure out uh, what, what, um, what was the same about these women's lives as the men's story, but also what was very different about these women's lives than the men's stories that we were familiar with. Now I want to make note of that. And I want our listeners to um, 
to also uh, key in on the the date that you just gave us. You did say 1996, correct? I did. I did. I was uh, working as a a freelance writer uh, doing magazine work and freelance writers uh, have to continually scramble to, to get jobs. And so that had to be my primary focus. So I, I did the research and I did a little, a, a few sort of rough drafts of various portions of this book. And then for about 10, maybe even 12 years, I didn't touch it at all. It sat in the bottom of a drawer. And, um, and while I did, I actually co-founded an environmental nonprofit and that took up every minute that I had. And then um, after I decided that I was getting to the point where magazine work was not as fun as it used to be, it's you have to scramble, like I say all the time, um, I decided I wanted to pull this, this manuscript out of a drawer. And then I realized that my writing, um, because I'd done so much magazine work over such a long period of time, I felt like my writing had become very compacted. And I think a lot of writers would understand what I mean. There was no air left in it. And so that's when I applied to Spalding. And when I applied, I, I said to, to Kathleen Driscoll, the director, I said, you know, I don't know that I'll ever finish the degree because I just want to get better at, 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 at writing fiction. I want to learn how to do that. And she kind of smiled and nodded. And, and of course, then I did finish because the program is so fabulous. And it's such a, a, a place that encourages you at whatever stage you're at in your writing. And I found a community there that I, is priceless. Well, um, I, I'm sure you did. And most everyone does. And it, it is a, um, for some, and um, Quite honestly, humbly, I say for me, uh, life changing in Absolutely. the way you look at writing and uh, think about writing and writers and and um, continue to strive and 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 uh, want to do better. And that's why you you go. Uh, they are so helpful and and they, and, and supportive. And uh, but I'm I'm curious. I think I read that you. You used the word compacted uh, a moment ago. So let's unpack that uh, phrase for listeners, uh, because you said you'd been doing a lot of magazine writing. You 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 were a journalist. Right. And there's uh, a vast difference, as we both found out, between writing straight journalism or magazine journalism or broadcast journalism and what you thought you could do when you got to Spalding in writing, even nonfiction or fiction. So tell us a little bit about that. And how did you, how did you see that changing? And did you know that going in uh, your first semester at Spalding? I think I did. I think I did know uh, that what had happened to my writing and it was, it was a product of of what happened to the world of magazines. Uh, When I had started writing for magazines, it was not at all unusual to get an assignment of 5,000 words or 3,500 words. And by the time I was was finishing up doing the writing for Southern Living, I was writing for their uh, regional sections. Um, You know, it would be about 500 words. So you were having to tell really sprawling stories in very, very few words. And while that's, I think that's a talent in and of itself that you have to develop, it really doesn't help your writing 
for fiction, or at least it didn't help mine for fiction. And um, so I had to learn how to let, <clears throat> kind of let the writing breathe again, I think. Um, and, and that was, I mean, I think I did know that going in. That was, that was kind of my main issue. And, and also uh, needing a writing community because magazine work, most of my editors were in New York uh, when I was writing for Southern Living. They were in Birmingham, and I did, I did see a few of those. Uh, but it, it, magazine editors, it's like musical chairs. They change jobs all the time. And so you might follow an editor to a different magazine or you might never hear from them again at all. So the community uh, aspect of, of being a freelance writer is nothing like the community aspect of being a Spalding grad. Tell me about the research process that you went through. Um, after you read that initial, that initial Boone uh, biography, if it was that, uh, or history, and then wrote some, put it in the drawer, got it back out again. Tell me about the research process that you went through in discovering Rebecca and the children, especially uh, the, uh, I guess, secondary protagonist, uh, Jemima and, and Susanna, who, who you write so eloquently about uh, all the way through. Well, the, the main repository for information on the frontier, Kentucky frontier, uh, the frontier, the first frontier, is, as a lot of historians like to think of it, uh, is from a, a single individual named Lyman Draper. And he, uh, as a young man, uh, became fascinated by the, the pioneer generation, most of whom were quite elderly when he began his attempts to uh, collect oral histories and, and information. Uh, but he traveled the back country um, starting around in the 1840s and, and interviewed some of the original pioneers, but primarily the pioneers' children and grandchildren. And so his collection of oral histories of correspondence, uh, all of that became the basis for the uh, Wisconsin Historical Society's collection. And so all the originals, all these original letters and things that were written from to and from Draper are, are in, that, in that collection. But we're fortunate that uh, the Wisconsin Historical Society has provided microfilm of, of at least much of Draper's collection. And you can uh, access the microfilm at various research libraries. And I was fortunate, I live in Knoxville, and I was fortunate the Knoxville, uh, the East Tennessee History Center had, had the microfilm. But when you're, when you're reading Draper's uh, correspondence with people, what you realize pretty quickly is these are just people's perceptions of a certain incident or a certain person at a certain period of time. And I, I've, I've often thought that um, it's sort of just happenstance as to what winds up being preserved and then what winds up being lost, we, we will never know. And of course, then you, what I did was I sat with the research that I, I was able to glean from the Draper manuscripts and from uh, the two main biographies of Boone, um, the major ones are John MacFerger, he's a Yale historian, his Daniel Boone, and then my very favorite is Robert Morgan's book, Boone. Uh, uh, Bob is, is a, a native of Western North Carolina and his ability to really understand, as he told me once, he grew up 
plowing with a mule and he he just understands the world of the boons in ways that I think uh, are just make his biography superb. Of course, I didn't have that in the beginning. I, I kind of uh, I, I was excited when I, I heard about it. Um, and, and so anyway, using all of the different both the biographies and the Draper manuscripts, I uh, found pieces of the women embedded in the records and then had to take those pieces and figure out how to expand them into something that could uh, bring their lives, uh, make those lives real for readers now. And um, there were two, in the Draper manuscripts, there were two um, stories, contemporary stories of Rebecca that I really based most of my portrayal of her on. I was thrilled that we had that much because uh, so often there, even though that sort of thing isn't available to an author, but the first, the opening one was recorded by a missionary, a Moravian missionary. And he, the Boons weren't famous at that point in time. And he recorded, uh, you know, his, his real concern for these women in the back country. You know, he, he, he questioned, he said, how do they manage? You know, they have, children and they live at miles from the nearest neighbor and they you know he really was very concerned and he talked about how in talking to Rebecca she revealed to him her fears and her um, you know the anxiety that she lived with and this was as a young woman and so I could key on that for the early part of her of a portrayal of her and feel like it was legitimate because that was the the glimpse we the actual glimpse of her that someone has left us. And then later there's a wonderful story where she has grown to the point where she feels capable of uh, actually uh, making the men in a fort uh, look kind of silly, you know, and it was a kind of brave thing to do for a woman to stand up to the men and say, you're not, you're not, protecting us well and uh, I'm going to show you up and she she and that's actually also a, a a real glimpse of her that was recorded Rebecca had um, 10 children correct yeah yes but you uh chose and I'd like to know why to and maybe because well I'm going to ask you why you chose to uh write uh, most about uh, Jemima and Susanna. Yes, I, I felt like we needed all three of, of those women's voices to tell the whole story. Uh, Susanna was the oldest daughter. Jemima was the next to the oldest daughter in the family. Um, all three, Rebecca, Susanna, and Jemima, had very different experiences on the frontier. And I felt like the, the trio of them really uh, allowed readers to see the, the variety of experiences that, that, you know, these women, you know, that women had on the frontier. And so, um, and I, I don't want to put in any spoilers here, really, but Susanna, Susanna's life was very, very difficult. Uh, um, women did not have a lot of power uh, over their lives. Uh, and so she wound up stuck in a situation that was you know, just almost impossible to to get herself out of. With a man, uh, with another, with her with, husband. With her husband, yes. And then um, Jemima, of course, her story is pretty famous, where she was kidnapped by the Native Americans. And I, I wanted to um, 
I wanted to show that because the record shows that Jemima um, really did not hold a grudge uh, about that. She really felt like her father, very, um, she was very friendly to the Native Americans, seemed to understand their, their side of things. And that allowed me as a, as a 20th, 20th, 21st century writer to show uh, that other side of this story. You don't want it to, uh, you don't want it to be all just the white person's perspective, you know. Um, and so that was really important to me to be able to do. And, and Jemima's character allowed me to, to do that. And there is another character that that's drawn uh, as fully as you can with the record that you had to go on and that uh, there were a number of enslaved in um, the family at one time or in the in the at Fort Boonesboro uh, with the family. Uh, and I'll ask you about that in just a moment, too. But there uh, apparently Susanna befriended one of the enslaved um, to tell us about her. Well, uh, the, the woman's name is Dolly. Well, we know she was at Boonesboro. Um, we don't know for sure if she was the enslaved woman that helped with the cutting of the Wilderness Road. We don't have a name. There was a journal entry by a man who was on that trip, and he just says, Callaway's enslaved woman. And so, but because there was an enslaved woman that the Callaways owned named Dolly at Boonesboro, I, I took that name as the closest thing I could do to honoring that presence. Um, she and Susanna, who was not quite 15 years old and newly married, were the two women that were on the cutting of what became the Wilderness Road. Uh, initially, it was called Boone's Trace. And th the women were there, and yet when you read most of the the histories, they're not mentioned at all. And I wanted to, to, to draw out that fact that there were women uh, on that trek. And it's been interesting, Bill, because um, I've had no women ever have questioned that these two women would have become at least companions of some sort, if not truly friends, uh, on, a, on a very difficult trek like that. Um, I've had men question that and say, oh, no, 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 you know, that they would have, they would have stayed apart. They would have, you know, there wouldn't have been a friendship, but, um, I don't, I haven't had a single woman who said that, that, you know, if you were the only two women in a very difficult situation, you would have had each other's backs and they were cooking for the men. So they would have had constant interaction. And also Susanna, um, had grown up in an area that did not have slaves for the most part or very few. So it would have been a new experience to her to have any real close contact with an enslaved person. And so I, 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 I wrote it the way I felt it. And I, you know, that, that's my take on it for sure. Well, you did the, the, the research there and, and frankly, um, until reading and then also visiting Fort Boonesboro, quite honestly, I don't ever remember realizing or understanding that there were enslaved um, indentured servants at that in that period of time. And I just wonder, had they been in North Carolina and came with the uh, the the traders and the the frontiersmen uh, or, or where or where did they come from? 
Well, there there was obviously slavery in in Virginia and North Carolina, which is uh, where a lot of the frontier families that then filtered into Kentucky, a lot of them came from there. But it was, you know, more of the landed, the landed uh, folks that had had slaves, and uh, the the folks like the Boones at that point in time did not. Now later on, um, at the very end of the book, they are on the Kentucky River and they're running a tavern, and they did own the Boone family did own some slaves then. Um, and I don't go into that because that part of it is is really not pertinent to the three. You know, I, you, you can't tell everything, obviously. You know, so. Um, what I felt was more important at that point in the book was to talk about Nanhelima, the Shawnee woman. She was a, a, another woman that has sort of been neglected and forgotten. And uh, and so, um, you know, the, the book spans 39 years. And, uh, and when you talk about um, Rebecca had 10 children, I really only highlight, the others are in there, but I really only highlight Susanna and Jemima. And I didn't mention at all, they did, the Boones did adopt two of Daniel's nephews who had been orphaned. But later on, the family adopted six more children who had been orphaned. And of course, I couldn't possibly have a cast of characters that expansive. Um, so obviously, you have to pick and choose as you're telling, as you're telling a story and, and try to keep things as focused as possible. How did you learn of the uh, Native American Shawnee uh, woman in, in the records, she um, she was captured and was a, a prisoner at the Boone Tavern, um, so that's accurate. Um, and in the community that's now called Maysville, uh, is where the 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 Boones had a had a tavern and trading post for a period of time. Um, and you know, I don't know for sure what interactions happened between Rebecca and Nahalima, but the but Nahalima was the tribe's peace chief uh, and had been as a young woman, uh, actually a warrior. She was extremely tall. The British called her the Grenadier Squaw, hmm. you know, which is kind of pejorative now. We wouldn't use that term, but because of her height. And I've seen uh, records that say she was anywhere from 6'3 to 6'5. I don't Goodness. know, you know, who, mm -hmm. who knows, but she was extremely imposing figure and had gone from being a woman who fought alongside the men uh, to someone who was really trying to get the cultures to try to live in peace with each other. And uh, so a woman who had gained a lot of wisdom, I think, over the years. And by the time she would have encountered Rebecca, she was a, a fairly elderly. She didn't live real long after uh, after having uh, been a prisoner. So. As a journalist, uh, when is the, not the exact time, but when's the first time you became familiar with the term historical fiction? And at the time that you heard it the first time as a journalist, uh, not as someone who maybe had written it yet, uh, did it bother you at all? And did you come to grips with it when um, that you could, you could take actual facts, but fictionalize them in a way, or at least uh, use uh, uh, fictional technique to, to tell a, an interesting story? Well, I've had to sort of fight with myself because my my first uh, profession was I was a university reference librarian. So as you can imagine, being accurate really matters to me. And of course, with fiction, you 
you sit with the facts as you know them, and then you have to expand. You have to think a little beyond the facts. Um, but my very first awareness of women being left out of the record, I was eight years old. And my parents had taken uh, my brother and I to Williamsburg, Colonial Williamsburg. And um, we didn't have a lot of television. Uh, you know, we, we had a little tiny black and white. And my parents kept it in the, in the closet. So <laughs> TV was not something I was familiar with. And then suddenly I was presented with this IMAX size movie in the visitor mm -hmm. center. You know, it was, it was called The Story of a Patriot. And I, you know, I just was enthralled by that. But even at eight, I recognized that the women in the movie, basically all they did was kind of wave goodbye to the men so the men could go off and do all these glorious and great things. And that bothered me even at age eight. And I, when we came out of the movie and wound up in the gift shop, as most families do when they're on vacation, I, I refused to get the mob cap, the little white cap that women of that period where I wanted a tricorn and to my parents great credit they get they allowed me to wear the tricorn all around Williamsburg I guess they everybody thought I was a little boy probably but uh, so it was that awareness I think that has been there since as almost mm. as early as I can remember mm -hmm. and as far as fiction I encountered when I was 12 maybe a book by a writer named Anna Seaton um, and it was a book called Catherine, and it was a story of uh, Catherine Swinford, who uh, was wound up marrying into royalty. Uh, what fascinated me was the fact that she really had lived and that you could go to these places that this author was writing about, you know, in England. And that just captivated me. So hmm. I think I've, I've always had a love for historical fiction. If you... Um wanted to say to to someone or if they ask what did you is there a message or a lesson or something that was learned from traces what what would it be what what overriding statement are have you tried to to make in in this book well i do i do hope that people will on their own begin looking between the lines of some of the histories, biographies, news stories that they read and think who's missing, whose stories are not being told in, in the midst of, of what I'm reading or what I'm, I'm uh, seeing on film or, or anywhere, um, because there are so many um, forgotten stories that deserve to be told. So that would be one thing. And the other thing is I really hope um, that people will come away from this story and not see it entirely as a white person's story, but see how multicultural things were on the frontier and begin to try to understand uh, those of us in particular who kind of grew up with the cowboy and Indian stereotype, you know, uh, begin to understand the other side of the story that these um, these people were being invaded as they saw it and, and to have a heart for that side as well and see that, um, you know, there's, there's many different sides to any story and that we need to always be aware of that and, uh, 
And I hope that people that, that read Traces come away with that sense. I'm talking with Patricia Hudson, the author of Traces, a, uh, a look at uh, the Boone family, the Boone women, uh, uh, Rebecca and uh, her her many um, children, uh, but especially uh, Jemima and, and Susanna, uh, and a wonderful book uh, that she has written uh, uh, over the last um, 25 years or so uh, or more. Let's not do the math. It's even longer than that, I believe. Now, if we use 1996 as your start date, uh, Patricia, uh, Patricia is a uh, extraordinary uh, writer of of some uh, uh, many uh, magazine uh, pieces um, and nonfiction pieces, and we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, right after we. Uh, she's also, uh, as was mentioned earlier, a graduate of the Nashland Man uh, Graduate School in Writing at Spalding University. Our our great friends and underwriter for this podcast. We'll hear from them and be back uh, with Patricia Hudson. Spalding University's low residency MFA in creative writing prepares students to publish, produce, and find professional success. Alumni publish books with top presses, write for television and film, and have plays produced around the country. They work as editors, professors, media professionals, content developers, and more. Writers thrive at Spalding's Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing. Learn more at spalding.edu slash MFA or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Patricia Hudson's our guest today on Think Humanities, and uh, we will move from uh, traces to uh, a few uh, final questions uh, about her work and her uh, research methods and and uh, her MFA at um, at Spalding. Before she did that, I uh, read uh, her uh, a wonderful website, by the way, uh, Patricia, and and uh, an interesting uh, tidbit uh, of. Um, uh, people of a certain uh, generation, um, I, and it should be of, of all generations, quite frankly, who um, who were uh, a lot of my television can be traced back to um, young adulthood when Roots was the the uh, go to television series of um, of maybe one's life. Uh, frankly, I mean, not to be over dramatic about it, 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 it had that much impact on on many who did not realize uh, uh, much about um, uh, that uh, period of, of our uh, United States of America. Um, Alex Haley was the uh, the author, and you, you did some work for Alex Haley. T tell us about your experience of knowing him. I did. Um, well, because I had been a university reference librarian, when I began to freelance, I, I did research for people as well as, as doing my own writing. And I had um, done a, quite a bit of work for a man named John Rice Irwin, who uh, started the Museum of Appalachia, which is in Norris, Tennessee. And John Rice, being quite an entrepreneur, had collared Alex uh, Haley when he came to see the 1982 World's Fair in Knoxville. And they, um, Alex was so, so taken with the museum that he bought land across the road from the museum and restored a, a farmhouse there. And, and that property now is, uh, belongs to the Children's Defense Fund. 
Uh, they have their retreats and things there. And the barn on that facility was designed by the wonderful uh, architect Maya Lin. So, um, so anyway, Alex kind of set down some roots here as much as he was, he was always on the go, really. But um, he was in and out. And at one point, he and Norman Lear decided they were going to tell the story of Amazing Grace. Um, because the author of Amazing Grace had been a slave trader, and during a storm at sea, had a, was had a conversion experience and renounced the lifestyle that he had been living. And uh, Alex wanted to tell that story, and so he, um, <laughs> John Rice, I guess, told him I I could do that kind of research. And so one day, in my little attic apartment, in my I was in my mid twenties at the time. Um, got a phone call and, and this kind of soft but low voice said, uh, this is Alex Haley. And, you know, and I thought it was a joke. <laughs> I thought it was, I thought it was my boyfriend at the time. Now my husband, <laughs> you know, calling me, you know, to, so um, it could have gone very badly at that point, but uh, I recovered. And, um, and he asked me, he said, I would like to ask if you would do research to figure out the melodic origins of Amazing Grace. Well, at that point in time, there was really, I mean, I called, using my reference, you know, background, I called the people at University of North Carolina, and I called everybody I could think of that had, had uh, you know, done a lot of research on Americana music and on hymns and everything else, and nobody could really tell me. So, I was in a panic because I didn't want to go back to Alex Haley empty handed. And so I, one night I was trying to think, okay, what do I do about this? And I, I uh, realized that the university of Tennessee had a collection of old shape note hymnals. Uh, and so I started in on that collection and I'd had enough musical background that I can read a musical line and tell if that musical line is is the melody of, of Amazing Grace. So I sat in the special collections at UT humming to myself, page, <laughs> page after page, trying to see if I could find uh, where this melody came from. And, you know, uh, because the original um, words were simply uh, set to whatever music anybody wanted to say it to, you know, or sing it to. And so... And lo and behold, I found, it was like a eureka moment in a shape note hymnal, uh, the melody being used for an entirely different hymn. And so I could go back to Alex with all this research and all these papers and say, okay, it obviously was circulating by X period of time, but it had not yet been attached to the, the words of Amazing Grace. And so that and, and Alex was a very, he was very, um, he had a gentle persona, you know, and, and uh, so he, he would, you know, his praise was very sincere uh, and very low key. And, um, and so it, it, that was one of my triumphs as a, as a 20, I guess I was probably 26 or something at the time. I thought I had really yeah, that was a mountain I had climbed. <laughs> yeah, well, it was. My goodness gracious. I and know he, he never, was. He never used, by the way, <laughs> he never used any of that. They never got to that project. And now, of course, this was all pre-internet. 
now there's a whole book that tells the whole story and I pulled my file out and I thought, well, I knew that. I knew that back in, you know, <laughs> but I never did anything with it either. He had paid me for the information. So it went off, you know, it went off with him, but, uh, well, and that's at how least freelancing you, goes, you know, at least you got paid. I got paid. Yeah, I did. Yes, and I, um, I have a really lovely personally autographed copy of roots, you know, so that was, yeah, oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, um, his home is, is open to the public. Uh, our board chair just visited there. It, that's not in Norris, though, is it? It is. It's, or is that is the home in Norris? Okay. The home in Norris, yeah. And and it's open um, periodically. I wouldn't say it's oh. – I don't think you can just drive down to Norris and, and waltz oh, in. Oh, really? Okay. But I, I think you do have to call ahead, but uh, – yeah. Or maybe yeah. that was pandemic. I don't know. But uh, Well, one of the other um, areas that I want to touch uh, on real quickly – is that um, speaking of forgotten women and writers, uh, is that uh, what you did in the anthology that, uh, that you put together um, on women writing in Appalachia? Um, and if that's not a, a, a volume that we should all have in our, in our library, and, and the main reason is because you... I just think it's uh, it, it's uh, it is history. Um, it's literary history, and it's history that I, I think that somehow we've got to uh, work real hard in in Kentucky and Tennessee uh, to be sure that we don't forget writers like uh, Harry Arnaud and and Janice Holt Giles and Denise Jardina and and Dorothy Allison and Elizabeth Hardwick, and you go on and on. And most of the time today. Uh, those those writers aren't being read, and um, and and I don't know what to do about that. Tell us about some of them, and, and what would you do about it? Well, um, first of all, I want to say that that book is the brainchild of Dr. Sandra Ballard from Appalachian State University. Uh, Sandy and I had known each other since gra uh, graduate school. And she came to me with that idea and said, look, this is huge, you know, so let's let's divide this up. And, and we did. And that book took 10 years to, to bring out, partly because, of course, we had to get permissions from lots of different authors and publishers and stuff to mm -hmm. to put together these excerpts. What we wanted to do was to to give um, each of these women writers enough time on the page to let readers get a sense of, of their work. And then the idea was we hoped that they would go on then to look up their, their full works and, and, and read. Uh, and and it's, it has been important to me, and I guess I'd like to say this to all the listeners in Kentucky. Kentucky has an amazing, amazing literary history and literary community. And um, being a Tennessean, I, I often um, am, am jealous of of the uh, how robust uh, Kentucky's uh, uh, just recognizing their their writers in ways that it, a lot of states don't. Um, and I don't think I would have become a, a writer as a career if I hadn't encountered first the Appalachian Writers Workshop in Hyman, Kentucky. Uh, I was sent there as a journalist in 1982 to interview Harriet Arno yeah. because Jane Fonda had just bought 
the film rights to the doll maker. And so the newspaper down here thought, ah, a story. And so they sent me up there and, um, and Heinemann was remote at that point in time. The parkway, the <laughs> Hal Rogers Parkway had not been completed. And yeah. of course you didn't have cell phones and you didn't have, you know, I mean, yeah. I got dumped off the Hal Rogers Parkway, Daniel Boone Parkway at that point in time and had to wind my way around to find this little fledgling writing community. I think maybe it was their fifth year and Harriet Arno uh, was on the faculty there. And um, I, I arrived at the settlement school right when she told me I needed to be there. I was, I was so afraid I was gonna be late and lost and everything else. And I got there and I walk in, the, the, somebody pointed me to where she was and I walked in and I realized she looked up and Harriet had eyes that could just bore into you. They were these, and she looked up at me and I realized I'd interrupted her workshop, you know, <laughs> and this is just not something. So I kind of slunk up to her, told her who I was. And she looked at me and she said, come back tomorrow. And oh, I, oh no, you know. So then I wound my way back to Hazard and got a hotel room, a motel room. And and it, there, the only other people in that the motel that night were, was a biker gang, and I was like, <laughs> I was like twenty, twenty five maybe, and you know I was terrified. I didn't even go out for supper that night, you know, and I, and I thought I am never coming back to Eastern Kentucky as long as I live if if I live through this. And so, but the next day I went back to Hyman. She gave me a wonderful, wonderful interview. Um, she even allowed me to record it allow me to take some pictures. And, um, and I was hooked. I walked around the campus and the next year I went back as one of Harriet's students. So uh, that, and I've been back, you know, many, many, many times since. So Do you go to the, um, to the Arno conference. I have not been to the Arno conference, but Sandy Ballard that I spoke of is one of the folks that almost always speaks there because she's uh, writing almost a, a I keep telling her she needs to finish uh, a biography of Harriet. And I hope oh, really? that also bring attention to, uh, to Harriet again. Um, yeah. And as to what to do, I think programs like this, Bill, I mean, I think you're doing a great service by mentioning the women's names that you mentioned. And well, I just, uh, I, I, I almost feel like there should be a movement to, um, I know this is kind of silly, but, and um, a movement to start reading, um, they're masters. Um, and, 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 um, I was so fortunate at KET to go back and, and we did the, the book club there and to read some of the, uh, to read some of, I, I don't think I would have known them. I, I didn't, I didn't have them, uh, in my schooling. Um, uh, we were reading modern classics and, and the current, uh, fiction and that, that sort of thing. Um, but there's so much to learn from them, their, their storytelling, and, and so much to learn about um, about Appalachia. Absolutely, and and uh, as I say, Kentucky has one of the richest histories. Uh, I I would really encourage everybody to to yeah. take a look at, at at the masters of the of the past because uh, they're very much worth reading still. Well, you and I both uh, were, were fortunate enough, and I still think it's just one of the best um, two or three days that uh, I've ever spent with Silas House when he uh, 
does his uh, lecture on uh, Southern fiction and uh, uh, book after book after book recommendation that Salas knows well and has read every word is an excellent, um, um, he, he, he doesn't do that very often. I, gosh, I don't even know if he does it at all anymore. Maybe, maybe at Berea he does. I, I guess he does in, in his classes. But we were, we were privileged to be uh, at Heinemann when he did that. Yeah, it, and the first person that I heard do an Appalachian Lit class like that was Wilma Dykeman. Um, <laughs> and she's, I happened to be in the very first Appalachian Lit class that was taught at the University of Tennessee. Yeah. And, and that was by Wilma. And then um, <clears throat> at the Appalachian Writers Workshop, the first year I was there, Jim Wayne Miller, who was one of the founders of yeah. the workshop, realized as he was talking about various authors that a lot of us did not have a clue who he was talking about. And he was so horrified by that that he said, OK, everybody meet me in X classroom at eight o'clock tonight. And then he, he proceeded, if I had had a tape recorder, it would be worth, <laughs> oh gosh, because he, yeah. it was a master class, you know? Um, and then I, I, I guess I ought to say that Silas is the editor for Traces. So, yeah, Silas, so yes, yeah, Silas has, has his hand in almost every yeah. pot you can think of. I don't know. I, I always say to him, do you ever sleep? I'm not sure you ever sleep. <laughs> do you still have the Harry Darno recording? I do. Uh, well, I have given it to Sandy uh, up at Appalachian State, but yes, yes, we still have it. So, gosh, I'd like to hear that sometime. I'll see if uh, we need to. Um, I suspect she's turned it into an MP3 or something by now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure, uh, Patricia Hudson, uh, author of uh, Traces, uh, to have you on our podcast. And we look forward to hearing uh, more from you and, and, and looking for your next work. And, um, and uh, you're, are you, are you, do you have any time at all now that you're a famous author? <laughs> uh, are you still doing a few magazine pieces here and there? No, I'm not searching them out. I, yeah. I will do them if some, if, if somebody comes to me and says, how about this? And it, and it's something that interests me, then I will. Um, yeah. I do love writing profiles. Uh, I think, I think when you're a journalist, part of the joy of that is you get to trail around and kind of be part of somebody's life and sort of live a different career or a different profession than, than yeah. but otherwise, and I, I do enjoy that still, but um, well. Yeah, that's that's kind of interesting. And um, well, you've had a had a great life. I know there are ups and downs and times uh, late at night when you're wondering, what the heck am I doing? Um, uh, but uh, th this is such a, a great debut uh, fiction um, uh, piece. And I know you're very proud of it. So and we are, too. So uh, we look forward to seeing you at the book festival. Thanks, Phil. Look forward to seeing you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.